It is Beto Mania. Not Beetle Mania. Beto Mania. And not Beto Mania. Not Beto. It's Beto, right? Beto. Yeah. Did you see Jake Tapper had a really good tweet the other day that was sort of a cheat sheet on how to say everyone's name? Kamala. Beto. It was really in Buttigieg. Yeah, do the the South Bend Mayor one. I'm not quite sure. sure. People are still saying it differently. I I heard it spelled out, or I I, I saw it spelled out, Boot Edge Edge. Well, I saw Jess McIntosh tweet, Buddha Judge. So, sort of like Buddha, then like Judge. Hmm. So, uh, the jury's still out. The jury's still out, and um, but it has been a big week in the uh, Democratic primary yes. campaign. Uh, and uh, with Beto's entry into the race last week, he... Uh, you know, he he answered one of the most uh, outstanding questions, whether he was going to get in or not. He's in. He had an interesting uh, announcement. It mm. was, uh, it was, he confirmed it to a local Texas reporter who tweeted it out. And it didn't it seem like, like an El Paso, was it radio station in El Paso? It was like an El Paso. Right. Right. It was a little it, it seemed it seemed like that was a bit of an accident, but obviously the the Vanity Fair uh spread that was done on him and Annie the foot Annie Leibowitz's uh shoot was uh just happened to uh run the next day and he was also in Iowa for a whole bunch of events. So mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I I've I've seen some criticism online from some of my, my wonderful feminist sisters who feel that the media gave him far more attention than they gave some other female candidates who were in the race when they ran. And I actually respectfully disagree with them. I think that when it comes to a rollout, it's incumbent on your campaign team to figure out how to get the most mileage out of something. Yep. And I think Beto did. And, and look, the media do love, I mean, there's a media love fest going on with him, but there's also a media love fest going on with plenty of other candidates. So I do think ultimately when it comes down to it, it is up to your campaign to get the most mileage out of that 24 hour period that ensues, you know, all the media attention you're going to get the day that you roll out your campaign. Right. And, you know, we've talked to all of folks that we know on these different campaigns. And you talk to the Kamala team. I think they would tell you that they had a great rollout. They felt like they got to maximize their attention. I've talked to Hickenlooper's team and they felt really good about his rollout. John Hickenlooper, who was a guest on our show a couple, uh, maybe a month or so ago now in the race. But his, um, you know, his team felt good about that. They did? Yeah. Yeah, they did. Interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if you asked Amy Klobuchar's team, they would feel good about that Hers event. Was outstanding. Right. So, you know, yeah. I actually think that the coverage of each of the candidates and their entry into the race has been pretty fair. I think with Beto, obviously, and with Biden and Bernie Sanders, there's going to be, and Kamala, I think they were, they were sort of the top tier names. And, you know, I think there's going to be probably a little more media interest than, than sure. some of the folks Which who are- Which is fine. Yeah. I um, mean, the, the fine line, of course, Doug, as you know, is making sure that the media does not define who the front runners are, right? Right. right. That you certainly have a natural- um, you know, process for by which there are going to be front runners and there are going to be tier two candidates and tier three and so on and so forth. But it's important that the media does not become the arbiter of deciding who to give more coverage based on who they simply like more. And I don't think they've done that so far. Um, but it's going to be a very difficult balance between covering Trump and covering the Russia investigation and covering everything happening on Capitol Hill and then also giving the cov- the, the candidates running um, 
a good degree of coverage. Right. And we heard from Rebecca Buck a few weeks ago just how uh, how some networks are going about uh, covering the race. And, um, you know, it's hard. I mean, look, they've, there's going to be 20, potentially 20 people running for president, mm-hmm. something we haven't seen in a long time. And uh, how you are fair and, and how do you cover each in a way that is, uh, you know, balanced is, um, and I hate to use the term fair and balanced, but uh, that's going to be important, right? I mean, because- Fox News would be so proud. I know, Fox right News. Now. I'm sorry. I didn't, I, I'm giving you a, a compliment. But uh, so we've got a good friend of ours. We do. Kurt Bardella who uh, I've known uh, for quite some time. You've known him some time. Mm-hmm. Kurt is a political columnist for USA Today. He's also a columnist for NBC News Think. He's a regular fixture on uh, MSNBC uh, as a political analyst. And he's also the publisher of this fascinating and fantastic and well-read um, music country music tip sheet called Morning Hangover. Um. The other interesting thing about Kurt is that he used to be a Republican and not just any old Republican. <laughs> Kurt was the was a fucking badass Republican. He ran oversight. He ran the oversight communications uh, operation for Daryl Issa. He was the thorn in the side of many Democrats. Uh, me and him sparred when I was on when I was on the Hill, uh, also on TV. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was one of the top Republican communicators and then something happened and we're going to talk about what that was. And we're going to talk a lot about uh, some other things with Kurt. Um, he was also a media consultant for Breitbart. Yes, that's right. He knows Steve Bannon very, very well. That's right. Knew him very well. So on behalf of my super talented partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, (laughs) Welcome to the Electables, Kurt. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. It's fun. It's uh, we've been we've been uh, looking forward to this day, and so I'm going to go just right to you yeah, know, let's right get into to it. it. You were one of the top Republican operatives on the Hill, a top advisor to Daryl Issa on the Oversight Committee. You worked for Breitbart, as Elrod said, and now you're a Democrat and one of the most vocal critics of the president. And of the GP- GOP. So what the hell happened, man? <laughs> you know, there's a lot that went into this. Um, first and foremost, I think getting married actually really changed a lot about my life. I married a, a, a hardcore Democrat who grew up in Northern California. And the thing that I found was in talking to her day in, day out about just things that are happening, I would have a level of conversation that I just never had in my Republican world. Shocking as this may be, (laughs) Republicans don't sit around and talk about climate change or social injustice or women's rights. Really? Uh, They don't? Never. I can't think of one time those issues ever came up uh, in in my social life at all uh, when when I was Republican. Uh, That, of course, changed when I started dating my now wife. And and in having those conversations, it it really – there's something to be said for having a, a conversation with someone who sees the best in you. Who, who appreciates where you're coming from, isn't looking to judge you, isn't looking to see the worst in you. It's a safe space to have an honest conversation, honest disagreements, and you can really find out where that other person is coming from. And in talking to her about a lot of those issues and how those issues have affected her own life, it really opened my eyes to things I just never really thought about. It wasn't that I was against those things or I didn't believe in those things. I just never thought about them in any way at all. You guys know that when you're in the fight day to day, 
it is a little bit like a competition and, and you're and you're on your team. And sometimes it becomes more important to beat the other guy. It doesn't even matter what you're fighting about that at uh, any given day. Right. And that's what I found happened to me. Along the way, uh, I was consulting for Breitbart at the time. I'd left Capitol Hill, opened my own uh, PR firm, and, and Breitbart was uh, my second client. And, and Steve Bannon was the guy who came to me and asked me if I'd be willing to work with them. And he said at the time he was looking to build a more credible platform that could be impactful on Capitol Hill, impactful in chronicling the conversation that was happening in the Republicans. At that time, there was a huge conflict between the establishment Republicans and the then called Tea Party. What year is this? So this is 2013. 2013. And so that fight is, is unfolding. And I think Steve was right in, in, in seeing that, yeah, there's a real space there for someone to come along and in the digital online space really own it. And they had made some hires, actually, that, that made me think that, okay, they might be serious about this. I hired a guy named Jonathan Strong to be the political editor. Jonathan's very well respected at the time. He's not in journalism anymore, but at the time, he worked with Robert Costa for a very long time. Doug's taking pictures of me and Adrian for yeah, some reason. Awkward. I don't, I don't even know what that's awkward. about. Catching these moments. These oh, are important moments. Candid moments. Awkward. So, you know, on face value, it seemed to add up. Now... After about a year, it became very clear that Bannon was building something very different than that. He wasn't looking to chronicle the conversation. He was looking to participate in it and shape it and shape it in a direction that I was personally very uncomfortable with. And we saw the manifestation of that with their tie-ins with Donald Trump. And one night, uh, the Trump campaign, uh, then campaign manager Corey Lewandowski, got into a physical altercation with Breitbart reporter Michelle Fields. And I was put in a situation where I felt like I was going to have to go out there and lie to the press about what was really happening. Uh, it became so clear that Bannon and Breitbart were so invested in protecting Donald Trump and his campaign that they were willing to throw one of their own reporters under the bus uh, to pr protect and preserve that relationship. And I personally just wasn't okay with that. So uh, I remember it, it was an, an insane news cycle. This story was everywhere. Video footage of every frame by frame of what happened between Corey and Michelle right. was playing on cable. Mm -hmm. And I just went, went to my laptop and I remember typing an email and it just said, Steve, effective immediately, I am no longer able to represent Breitbart. Uh, good luck. And yeah. that was it. That was the last time I ever had any interaction with them and never talked to them ever again. Um, much to my shock, and I'll never understand this, they leaked it. They leaked that I had quit. <laughs> and I got a call from a reporter like 45 minutes later asking, is it true that you resigned from Breitbart? I'm like, how in the hell do you know that I didn't tell anybody? I had a... <laughs> I literally had the plan to go to Nashville two days later for a country music event. So I was going to get out of Dodge and not even think about this. But sure enough, they put their spin was Kurt, such a crummy PR guy that he left us in our moment of crisis. No one should ever. That was their spin. Um, <sighs> so I felt the need to then, okay, if, if you're going to start trashing me, then I have to defend myself. And so that night I went on for the first time ever CNN, uh, Don Lemon show. And Don asked me, Kurt, is Breitbart and Steve, are they lying when they say that they got Michelle's back? And I said, yes. And there was about 15 seconds of dead air. And, and I thought his audio went out or something went wrong. And then he says, I'm sorry, no one's ever just said the truth before on my show like that. <laughs> and, and, and that segment kind of went viral and then I started doing more TV. And uh, if you would have told me that night that a year later... Donald Trump would be president. Steve Bannon would be the chief White House. Right? I never would have believed you. My, I really thought that I'm going to be done with politics. I'm not going to have to talk about these people ever again. Hillary is going to win. They're going to go away, and I'm going to focus more on country music. And and of course, unfortunately, that unfortunately did not that's not what happened. 
did not happen. We are and so in the upside down world now. There was this very strange dynamic where for whatever reason, the only human on earth who worked with Bannon and could talk about it, I didn't have an NDA. I didn't sign any of those contracts that they signed everybody else to. So I was free to talk to anyone and anybody Smart. I wanted. And so Is that I was, because you were consulting. Is that why? I honestly think it's because they screwed up. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> they forgot to give it to you. I just think they never got around to doing that for because uh, I got a cease and desist letter from their attorney, and my my attorney replied, "Please provide said signed agreement," and never heard from them Crickets. again. Nice. Um, and so I became the kind of de facto Bannon Breitbart guy because I was the only one who could freely discuss it. Right. That's great. And Kurt, I I know you know you and I emailed quite a bit during Hillary's campaign. When you um, decided to become a Democrat and you were a wonderful advocate for Hillary on television and it was great to have sort of this, you know, group of never Trumpers, you know, former Republicans or even Republicans who had not abandoned the party but had decided um, that they were supporting Hillary because they didn't like Trump or they just liked Hillary mm-hmm. a lot. Um, so you and I had quite a, you know, quite a few interactions during the campaign as well. Um, so let me ask you this. Have you lost any friends because of your party switch? Yes. Uh, some very, very close people that I, I never imagined would not be in my life. Um, that's Doug's phone vibrating there for anyone yeah, who wants to know what thanks, that is. Doug. After he was done taking pictures, he didn't turn his ringer off. Um, <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of people who are in, who are what daily fixtures in my life, uh, who were very off put by, by my decision, who I think took it very personally when I would go on, uh, on TV or, or on Twitter and say like, you know, if you stand by and allow this garbage monster and Trump to do what he's doing, you're, you're part of the problem. You're complicit in it. You know, if, if you really care about your party and, and care about the things that you have talked about for all these years, and now you somehow are, are silent about it, there, you, there's something really wrong with you. And, and they took it very personally. They, they felt that I was personally telling them that they're terrible people, uh, w- which was not my intention. Um, right. But they couldn't reconcile that. And so yeah, I've, I've, lo- I've lost some friends, but I've also gained some friends too, I got to say along the way. Um, you know, it's, like me and Adrian. I was exactly. going to say, you know, it's like, look, our, our, one big happy family. One big happy family. I, the thing is, I remember the very first time I ever did TV in my life was opposite Doug on Fox News. And I think Shannon Bream was, was hosting. It was probably mm-hmm. a, a, a Saturday hit. Right. Um, and I think the topic was about Obamacare. And, and so it's <laughs> funny to me now that here we are seven, eight years later right. doing this podcast. All in the same family. Full circle. Uh, so I'm really curious about just Breitbart. Yeah. How, what was it like to work there? Um, you know, like just the whole environment there. Yeah. As a communicator, you know, again, my job ultimately was to one help amplify any scoops that they had, right? You know, if they had, you know, an exclusive with you know, Sarah Palin, to make sure that maybe that showed up in political playbook or the Daily Two O Two or those email tip sheets mm-hmm. we all agreed, and, and that you know the various cable TV outlets would mention that you know as reported in Breitbart. The other half was kind of like crisis comms. Whenever they would do something controversial, which was pretty much every day, you know, dealing with that. And it was so interesting because I think how any one of us would deal with a crisis, their mindset was the exact opposite. When you get the call from a reporter asking, you know, the story that you guys have up there is wrong. It's inaccurate. Here's how, blah, blah, blah. Our reaction normally would be, oh, God, that's terrible. We got to fix this. We should probably take it down, apologize, fix it, whatever. Their reaction was, this is fantastic. Boy, we're really getting to them. They're, they're so upset. They're losing their mind. What? Right. They're actually reading our stuff. Oh, yeah. Th- that's it. And, 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 it, and it became clear that it was more important to them and to Bannon that everybody was talking about them in some way 
then whether it was accurate or not or good or bad, it didn't matter. Just right. as long the worst thing I always said this the worst I thing I think you could there's do. there's someone who comes to mind that really also uh, Sounds approaches familiar, right? <laughs> approaches things like that right and, and I think it's it's as true for Trump as it is for Bannon and Breitbart the worst thing you could do to them is not talk about them at all right which is why it drives me absolutely nuts when today 2019 there are people you know last week the uh, uh, Showtime uh, the circus on Showtime did an interview with Steve Bannon. I can't for the life of me understand why they did that. Why are you giving this guy plat- that platform, that legitimacy? This is what he lives for. Mm-hmm. He was able to basically con Donald Trump into thinking he was this master strategist solely based on the fact that he hosted a radio show every day that he had Trump on every week. And, and, and that the media, because they didn't know anything about his past, there was this kind of enigma to Steve Bannon. And people just, I think, initially assumed he must be some evil genius. You saw that phrase everywhere in print, evil genius. It, it was all smoke and mirrors. Well, and yeah, I, I was just going to say, I mean, we laughed about that a lot, that, that label of him during the campaign, because really he took opposition research and used it effectively or right. somewhat effectively. I mean, there are people who do that in politics all the time. I think the media just gave him an, you know, an extra platform um, overly sensationalized platform. So because of his position on the Trump campaign mm-hmm. and because there was such a mis- mystery around who these people were who were in Trump's orbit. Um, okay, so I want to pivot really quickly to Kurt's time with Daryl Issa, who yeah. is a former member of Congress from Orange County, California. Um, I was Loretta Sanchez's chief of staff for six years. He was also a former um, California um, me- member of Congress from Orange County. Um, when she, when Loretta was, when I was her chief of staff, she was the only Democrat in Congress that represented Orange County. Right. Now we've got how many Kirk, like three or four, all, pretty much all the seats or the entire, the entire, the entire Orange, Orange County, delegation. County delegation is Republican or yep. Democrat now they got wiped out. So what do you attribute that to? It's a couple of things. Um, first and foremost, the California Republican party as an institution has failed to keep up with the changing demographics in California. Dem- California has become the most diverse state in the union. Uh, it is one of the few states where uh, white people are the minority mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and immigrants and African-Americans and Hispanics make up, constitute the majority. All the while, the Republican Party line has continued to be a very hard right, hard conservative, anti-immigrant. You know, a lot of the things you're seeing Donald Trump and the Republican Party say nationally today, the California Republican Party has been saying that for the last you know, two decades. Right. And, and I think if you want to look at where that road ultimately leads, you look at California, where you have hardly any Republicans left. They can't run anyone competitively in the statewide offices like governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state. The state legislator is two-thirds Democrat now. It's a veto-proof majority of Democrats mm-hmm. that they have. Um, and particularly in Southern California, which is, again, the, you know, ground zero of diversification and, and having that, you know, influence of, of immigrants coming in and, 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 and it's a real melting pot there. It, the, the, the demographics have never matched the political ideology of the California Republican Party and it's finally caught up to them and that's why you're seeing I think these major changes happen. I mean even you know Daryl in the in the last election that he ran in and so this was two years ago, his race was the last race that was called I in the that. country. He mm-hmm. barely won and this is a guy who's worth almost a billion dollars. Had 100% name ID. I mean, you know, he was in Congress for almost two decades. Very well known, high profile, high stature, and he barely squeaked by against, frankly, a terrible candidate. Who wasn't? It was it was a guy named Douglas Applegate who had so much baggage. Like this is a guy who had like his wife had filed harassment claims. He was not a good candidate. Mm-hmm. 
And that guy got within a few hundred votes of beating Daryl. Yeah. It's really incredible. Which is why he didn't run again this time down because he <laughs> right. lost. Right. I was just looking at the 1988 electoral college map and George H.W. Bush won California in mm-hmm. 88. You know, Reagan won it in 84. And it's that wasn't that long ago. 88 was not that long ago. Oh and gosh, even it's a Republican look at, state. Look at the mid-90s. And Pete then Wilson Schwarzenegger, obviously. Wilson. Pete Wilson, Wilson was governor. We had a Republican legislator in 1994. Mm-hmm. Not that long ago. It's really fascinating just the shift that's occurred in California. Um, and I, you know, I think a lot, a lot of us on our side of the aisle uh, and now your aisle hope that's some that that's happening in Texas, right? Yep. In a state like Texas in um in places like Georgia as well, where we're, where you're seeing an influx of uh, people of color, young mm-hmm. voters, uh, young folks, you know, that that's the hope, obviously, that they're going that a state like Texas is going the way of California. Well, and, and the rally, too, is California has become, frankly, overpopulated. It's very expensive to live there. There's only they can only go east, you know, people there, you know, and yeah. so that's why you're seeing just in that entire area, whether it's Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, you know, it, it is much more competitive for Democrats in all of those areas than it was 10, 15 years ago. Right, right. Uh, I want to go uh, to your uh, your time on the Oversight Committee. So just based off of that experience, how do you think things are going right now on the Hill uh, in terms of Democrats and oversight? Obviously, it's about time, right? Oh, that, man. <laughs> that we have some oversight of this administration. But I'm thought I'm you know I'm, I worked for Elijah Cummings. I know you know Elijah Cummings well. I, I'd love your take on how he's doing, and then the larger sort of oversight apparatus and strategy that Dems are implementing. You know, there couldn't be a better guy to be the chairman of the oversight committee at this moment in time than Elijah Cummings. Um, this is a person who I think is incredibly sincere, is respected by everybody, regardless of political party, and isn't a showboat. He's not there for the long. You don't see Elijah Cummings on the cable TV circuit every day. And, and, and that's not who he is. And I think having someone who's a little bit more reserved on the public facing side of things at a time when there's so much clamoring for oversight and investigations and subpoenas. And, you know, we've been reading for months now about, you know, this oversight tsunami that was going to happen if Democrats took back the majority. And here's a guy who isn't saying any of those things and really approaches those those tools as the last resort. Um, that, that says a lot about his, his temperament. And, and that job really is all about temperament. It's about keeping your composure in these high stakes hearings where clearly the other side is going to try to rally you up and, and bait you into making emotional statements and knock you off your game. He doesn't fall for that. He's not someone who can be tricked or bullied. Uh, yeah, he's going to stick to his game. He's a very methodical, deliberate guy. Yeah. And, and it's showing in how he's conducted himself and the Michael Cohen hearing, and then last week when, when Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross testified, you know, Cummings doesn't fall for any of those antics and is just, I think, very fair. Yeah. Um, that's what you want from someone like that. I think actually all the other congressional Democrats could probably take note from how Cummings is conducting himself publicly. He's not someone who's going to make huge, grandiose declarations and then go try to get the facts to support that. He's going to let the facts take him to where he needs to go. And, 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 you know, the biggest mistake that we made when, when we were in the majority and I worked at the Oversight Committee was we had a tendency, I had a tendency, to make huge, grandiose pronouncements, uh, to gin up the press and get attention. And, and a lot of the times the facts ultimately— How many times did you, say, did you say one of the investigations was, um, like, water, worse than Watergate? Oh, my gosh. We use that <laughs> phrase so often. This, this is Watergate-like, you or know. Obama's man. Katrina. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was a, that was another oh, one too. Yep. I mean, we hyperbole was our friend. 
and, and, and frankly, the press were willing accomplices in all of this too. Right. Um, but it, it was, it, it's, it showed us though at the end of the day, when you look back, I think at the Daryl Issa legacy, that's a part of it of, of a lot of talk, but not necessarily a lot of the goods to back it up. Uh, Democrats would be very wise to learn, to, to learn from them because the reality is this, there are so many more things that we know with 100% certainty today where there's been wrongdoing and there's been unethical conduct and conflict of interest. We didn't have one one hundredth of the concrete evidence that exists today back during the Obama years to go off of. And so when you know that you have the goods, that's the time to take a step back. That's a time to ratchet down the rhetoric and just let the facts speak for themselves. Right. Right. Well, look, as a, as a Democrat, I will say that I could not be more happy with um, with Pelosi as a speaker, with Chairman Cummings in his position, with uh, Chairman Nadler in his position, Chairman Schiff, and Chairwoman Waters. I mean, mm-hmm. those are the four oversight, uh, you know, conductors, if you will. And I can't think of anybody better suited in those respective positions, given the magnitude of right. what you know the, the issues that they have to contend with. Um, but I want to pivot really quickly, um, or not really quickly, I just want to pivot, <laughs> Kurt, to um, the biggest news, I would say, probably of this week, besides Michael Cohen slash Paul Manafort, um, which is 2020. A lot has happened yeah. this week. What are your thoughts? You know, what are your just general thoughts on the field? Yeah, this is interesting for me as a new Democrat going through my first presidential cycle as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that we have such a strong field of candidates. I think that's a good thing, ultimately. I'm not, I'm not of the belief that we need to have just one or two people. I, I, I really like a strong, rigorous debate. And, and, and the fact that it's so diverse and there are so many different types of, of candidates out there, I think is ultimately a good thing. Um, you know, I, started being, I think that uh, Castro is an interesting person, given, again, being from Texas, everything that's going on at the border, being Hispanic. He's... I think the only Hispanic that's that that's running right now. Um, that's an interesting perspective to have mm-hmm. in the conversation. I think obviously what Harris brings to the table uh, is unique and important, as well as Gillibrand and 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 Klobuchar. Uh, you know, I'm going to assume Biden's going to get into this thing like everybody else is. And and, mm-hmm. and and Biden, I tell you what, he brings to the table that's so unique to me that's appealing. I'll say is this is someone who is sincere, authentic. I don't think anybody questions how a President Biden would handle what the events that we've seen the last week, whether it's the terrible tragedy in New Zealand, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it, it's, it's any, any of the number of things we've seen here at home unfold. Biden's humanity, to me, is one of his greatest assets, and it's something that Donald Trump can't possibly compete with because mm-hmm. he doesn't possess that ability, that, that empathy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's reminding people that that should be a part of, of, of being president is a good thing to have in the conversation to contrast with Donald Trump. Right. Um, so, I mean, there, you know, and obviously I'm, I'm curious to see how Beto does. I think it's one thing when you're running against Ted Cruz, who everybody pretty much dislikes, even Republicans will tell you they, no, this is not a likable guy. Mm-hmm. His own colleagues don't. I think we can take away right? the pretty much. And just say, <laughs> He's not a likable guy. guy. Like no one likes the guy no matter what. Right. So it's like, it's one thing to run against that. It's very easy to, 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 you know, have, everybody love you when you're running against the most unlikable person in the U.S. Senate. It's a lot different when you're running against other candidates that people, people like Cory Booker, people like Kamala Harris, people like, uh, you know, Joe Biden. And, and, and so 
how will he do when it's not going to be just a, a 100% one-sided love affair? Right. Like, I'm curious to see how that how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, especially with candidates who all share very similar positions. I mean, you know, they're going to be um, creating contrasts. They're, they're going to have to. And I just wonder if Beto is going to be willing to make those contrasts, right, in a debate in his advertising strategy, even just on the stump, you know, with some of his Democratic uh, opponents now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not – he did do it a bit against Cruz late right. um, in his advertising. When he ran against Sylvester Reyes, um, he was – he actually didn't do it. He didn't want to draw contrast with him. There was a super PAC that helped him out that ran negative ads against Reyes. So he is – and he has said that he doesn't want to – it's, it's, for him, it's not about defining himself against other people. But the reality is, is we all know this, that in a campaign, you have to, you have to do that. Right. And you don't have to be overly negative, but you do have to paint a picture for voters as to what is the difference between him and Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. him and Cory Booker. Because on the issues, they're going to be basically pretty much the same. Right. And, and, I, and I'm so curious to see what it'll be like when they start having the, the, the debates and you have these people all on stage with one another and you can see tangibly see the difference between, you know, Beto or, or Klobuchar or, you know, all, and, and any of the 20 that we'll have at that point in time. Um, you know, who, again, the, the one advantage Biden has is you, you don't have to imagine him as president. He is presidential. He's, I think, one of the only ones who just has that stature at this point in life. Um, he'll, he will conduct himself as being very presidential, I, I suspect, in, in these debates and in these side-by-side comparisons. I don't know if Beto has that yet. Yeah. Um, we'll see. I'm going to make the case that uh, Adrian Elrod and I should be moderators for uh, one of the debates. Yeah, I'm going to. No, you don't want to do that? Yeah, sorry. Okay. Oh, you'd be so good. We're a podcast. Yeah, so. We're podcast not a major debate. Net television network. Yeah, we can be the moderators. Come on, the electables. The electable. That, that, that is the a, perfect name for a debate. DNC is a client of mine that is not a DNC sanctioned debate. Oh. <laughs> Get a, wa- have, like, get a waiver. We can have a mock debate. Boo. We can have a forum. Boo. Forums are allowed. Mm. All right, we'll do a forum. Let's do an electables forum. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, me hey, too. You can, be, you can be the other moderator. I'll be a moderate, a new, a new generation Democrat. Yeah. Right. With different perspectives. This will be your first full presidential cycle, right? That yes. You've been a Democrat since I'm a, you, you it will switched be. during the last cycle. Uh, see, I, so I, I came out and publicly said I would vo- be voting for Hillary. Uh, I didn't officially join the Democratic Party until... Uh, that later on that year after the whole Roy Moore debacle in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, what really pushed me over the edge was, wasn't just Donald Trump, because that's not enough for me. Like, I'm not going to let him have that kind of control over my life. But it was the collective silence of the entire Republican Party as other things were going on, like trying to make a, a, a an alleged sex offender uh, who preyed on teenagers at the local mall a U.S. senator. Right. I mean, it's like if if, if you can't draw the line there, I want nothing to do with your party. And that's, by the way, what I appreciate about you, Kurt, among many other things. But you didn't just become a never-Trumper and say, I'm still a Republican, but I'm, I just don't like Trump. You actually came out and said, I'm switching parties. Because not only do I not like Trump, but I also don't support the values that my party, my former party now, mm-hmm. um, has aligned themselves with. Um, especially when it comes to supporting a, a, a candidate like Trump with all of his, you know, his litany of issues. Right. Because it's so much bigger than just... Donald Trump himself, you know, it, it's everything that he represents 
that the Republican Party used to be against. They used to be a party that talked about fiscal conservancy and, and the, the irresponsibility of passing family values. Death. Family values. Mm-hmm. Like, how does that square with sleeping with a porn star while your wife is pregnant and paying her off and then lying about it? They, they can make the, the ev- evangelical community can make a lot of excuses. Like, they're having this guy sign Bibles. Like, how does right. I mean, on what planet does that? Can you imagine work? if Hillary Clinton had signed Bibles oh, or Barack Obama God. or really any Democrat with like major national stature right. or any Democrat for that matter? Period. Right. So I mean, it's just th- th- there's so many irreconcilable. Uh, abandonments that the Republican Party is now just com- completely allowed to happen that I, I I did not want to be a part of it. And I didn't want to be, I think there are a lot of people who did take the the Never Trump moniker as as a way to live with it, I suppose, and go, well, I'm against Trump, but I'm still, well, I, I think that's kind of chicken shit personally at this point. Well, so. my question, of course, is like, what does that mean their role is this cycle? You know, what do they do? Are they going to keep bashing on Trump and then bashing on Democratic candidates or are right. they going bashing on Cause, Howard Because a Schultz? lot of those folks are still going to be, you know, frankly, working for campaigns, working, you know, cut cash and checks and, and, and still being a part of that apparatus. And I think that's a lot of the reason why a lot of people don't change parties is because they feel like, and there's some truth to this, they are baked into their system, to the, their professional identity sure. is tied into the party. And it can make for some very uncomfortable financial decisions. I mean, mm-hmm. when I switched, I had to make the decision to completely stop working with any Republican interest at all. I, like it, it very much took money out of my pocket. Yeah. yeah. And it's not like I had a backup, like, oh, I have a job lined up with Democrats. Who the hell is going to hire me at that point in, in the Democratic Party? That would make no sense. The, yeah. And you, you actually raise a good point, Kurt, because, you know, for, for those listening out there, I mean, this is Washington, D.C. is a company town. There is one profession really that rules this town and it's politics slash government, mm-hmm. which really is all politics. Um, if you decide to switch parties or if you some you know leave your former boss on a bad note, um, it can result in a very difficult time trying to actually generate business and get hired by by somebody. And it was you know in a lot of ways, it was this other completely different part of my life in country music that gave me the financial freedom to be able to to, to leave parties mm-hmm. and you know because thankfully that part of my life started becoming successful. And so I didn't need to worry about making a buck here in D.C. or working with this lobbying firm or with this consultant or with this organization, I was able to to speak my truth, do it publicly, and, and do so in a way where my financial freedom wasn't going to be compromised at all by it. Speaking of country music, figured we'd just move right there. The Morning Hangover, your tip sheet, very well read by uh, the industry. Um, you started that, uh, when did you start that? Uh, 2016. And just what's the genesis of it? It seems, I mean, I remember when we, when we caught up a year ago, you were telling me about it. I thought it was so fascinating. You know, it's so, on the surface, it's so absurd to me. Um, I took my wife to a Rolling Stones concert that happened to be in Nashville on her birthday. And, um, Brad Paisley had opened for the Stones for that one show. And so we were- Do we have any Brad Paisley that we can queue up? All right, sweet got a new great song called Bucked Off that he just put out. Um, so I was at this show, and I started talking to people sitting around me uh, uh, at the arena and just asked them, like, hey, you know, I, I'm from D.C., and, and everyone there is kind of a political junkie, actually. And I started asking them, so what do you guys read to know what's going on? Like, in our world, we have all of these freaking email tips. Here's like 10 of them now. Axios, Political Playbook, The Note, you know, Chris Eliza, The Point. What's your version of that? I'd love to read it just to know what's going on because I'm a big country music fan. Mm-hmm. And they said, "Well, we don't really have anything like that." And I thought, "Huh? Hmm. How do you know? How do you know what's going Light on?" Light bulb. And uh, 
And so I, I thought about this for like three months. For some, I, I just kept coming back to it in my brain. And then one night in like October, um, I, uh, I just kind of wrote out like, what would a tip sheet even look like? Like maybe there's not enough content to do it every day. Uh, maybe we're all nuts in DC and, and there's something seriously wrong with us that we read tip sheets all the time. Um, but I wrote one out and I sent it to the one person I knew who worked in the music business said, Hey, would you ever read something like this? Kind of hoping that he would say no. So I could just stop thinking about this. <laughs> he unfortunately wrote back, this is really good. Yeah. I'd read this. And I thought, shoot. All right. <laughs> I got to do it I now. Do it now. I just got to try it. Just like, and, and so I, I, I did a two week trial. I'm like I'm gonna do this for two weeks. I went to LinkedIn, typed in every label group, you know, universal Warner, whatever, Sony, and uh, got their a list of employees through LinkedIn and just kind of guessed, I guessed what their email address was going to be. I, <laughs> most people in the world, if you're listening, most people's email address is first name, dot last name at fillinablank.com or some variation of that. And so I did that and put together this kind of little list of like 200 industry people and just put out the morning hangover as an email. Didn't put my name on it. It was completely anonymous because I thought one of two things will happen. One, everyone's going to hit delete or unsubscribe or two. They're not sure what it is, but it's the content and the presentation is good enough that they're going to read it. And much to my shock, it was very much the latter. Um, and then eventually, I uh, I remember on, on, on a Sunday edition, I outed myself. I said, hello, my name's Kurt Fardella. I'm the guy who's behind the morning hangover, which it was interesting because I went to Nashville the following day and everyone told me that they, there was a huge guessing game all over town of what the morning hangover was. They thought it was maybe a former radio guy. They thought it was a new artist trying to break into Nashville. Thought it was a PR firm from LA trying to soften the ground to open a Nashville. There was all kinds of theories, and none of them guessed that it would be a, a, a political guy in DC. That was like the last thing they were thinking of. Was that your? Was that the moment when you realized that this thing was was hot? Or would, yeah. I remember you were telling me another story where like there was someone who contacted you, yeah. uh, a record exec, and uh, I, uh, you kind of realized it was pretty of, hot. In the course of a day, I had three three people who run three different labels just ping me and say, Hey, we read this every day. It's great. And I thought, you know what, if they're reading it, that's, you know, okay, there's something to this. Um, you know, if the guy who discovered Taylor Swift, Scott Borchetta reads the morning hangover. All right. There, there's something that th this is going to work on some level. I don't know where it's going to go or how, but I'm onto something and I'm going to keep doing it. That's a really great story, Kurt. And how many people subscribe so we're to up your to, newsletter? We're up to 30,000 people now. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you advertise on it or how big, and how can people sign up? So you first, might be you got to go to morninghangover.com, mm -hmm. which, by the way, I was shocked that that domain was available. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, when, when, you know, I remember having to go through the thought exercise of, I have to name, call this something, right? Mm -hmm. well, what are you going to call it? And I sat around for like an hour coming up with different names. And finally, I said, morning hangover. You know, that's that's kind of how I feel after a concert. I feel, well, both physically hungover, but, but almost more emotionally, like, oh, it's over. Like, I have to wait another month or two months till I go to another concert and that sucks. And, and I'm so down about that. And so I, I did what anyone would do in, in, in branding. I went to Twitter, went to Instagram. Oh, morning hangovers available. Look, okay. That's what we're going to call it. Um, you know, much to my shock, uh, also along the way, one of the music labels asked me if they could sponsor it. And I thought, Oh, well, of course you can. <laughs> there could be money in this. <laughs> oh, like, you know, to that point, I just been doing it for free. Cause I love it. It's just, it's a passion. Um, and, and once one label did it, then all the other ones, the next day, like, Hey, we saw that this label did it. How, how do we get in on this? And so now, uh, you know, it's sponsored almost every week by the labels. That's fantastic. Really great. Who are some of your favorite country music artists? 
Oh man, that's it's so hard. Are you now. allowed to? Are it's, you allowed to you say know, this, given that you write the the morning you know, hangover? I, I'm very Can clear. You show bias? I'm very clear my biases. <laughs> I actually uh, I think that's part of the reason why this caught on is because it show the people in the industry appreciate that I'm a true blue fan, and so I I love you know people like Chris Young, Brad Paisley, Tim McGraw, newer artists like Marin Morris, Casey Musgraves. Uh, I love Marin Morris. She's fantastic, and her she has this new album out uh, called Girl that is just phenomenal i mean it's an amazing amazing album and it's interesting too because at the same time you know as i've come into this space there's so much politically going on with artists like Marin speaking out about like women empowerment mm-hmm. which isn't something you used to hear a lot about in the country music space at all no and now people like her are, are leading the way or casey musgraves you know who, who's very much about equality social equality who just won four grammys including album of the year all genre um has a song called Rainbow out right now that that that, that t- touches on some of those things. So it's a really interesting time in, 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 in the genre. And I think it's such a great point that you mentioned that because this is the next generation of country music artists, but they also reflect the next generation of young Americans, right, who are millennial, who oh, so um, tend so. to be more progressive on social issues as, as a whole, yeah. um, collectively, a majority. Um, and it's, it's great to see the country music industry embrace them. So let me ask you this: Can Democrats or, or what can Democrats really do to sort of make inroads with country music fans who tend to be? It's obviously a growing and evolving mm-hmm. music industry. I mean, you know, music genre. But what can Democrats do to really, um, you know, help convince some of these, you know, people from Middle America, from the Midwest, from the South, mm-hmm. um, to support them? Well, I think it's it's engaging these artists to be faces invisible. Uh, you know, if I were in charge of the Democratic National Convention, mm-hmm. I would have Marin Morris play Girl. Mm-hmm. I would have Tim McGraw and Faith Hill play this song they have called Speak to a Girl. I would have Brad Paisley play the song called uh, Shattered Glass. Uh, you know, I, I would make, you know, we, I always say the Democrats always have uh, our party, I should say now. I'm so used to saying the Democrats as the other guys. <laughs> our, it's your party. The Democrat it's party. party. Our, party, our, party, party. Our, party. our party always does so great with you know, Katy Perry and Beyonce and, and, and amazing talents. I would love to see the country music artists that are vocal and, and, and who are willing to be just as visible to be invited to be a part of that. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think part of it is just awareness. Um, you know, we have right now so many artists speaking out about gun control. You know, gun reform is something that hit really, really close to home for the country music community after the, tr- the tragedy at Route 91 in Vegas. Right. Um yeah, that shook the entire community. Where is Jason Aldean, by the way, by the way, on gun control? Did he come? I mean, did he take any sort of politically active positions? Because he wasn't he performing. He was on stage. Happened? He was on yeah. stage uh, when the shooting came down. And, 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 and what we've seen is almost every artist that was on that festival, Marin was one of them. Eric Church, another Aldean. They have all talked about a support of of common sense gun reform. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, there, there, that, that. I mean, it's community... horrible what happened, but it's great that there's some sort of like activism oh, yeah. that has resulted they just, from we this just tragedy. Had, like two weeks ago in California, um, you know, in, in the same community as the nightclub, uh, the country college uh, bar that got shot up a couple weeks months ago, mm-hmm. they had a big benefit there. Um, now I'm, we're we're going to have the Academy Country Music Awards coming up in in, in just a week and a half uh, in Vegas, and, and you know, and again, it's this will be one of the first times that we're all going back to Vegas after, after route 91. And so, you know, that, these are things that, that are being talked about visibly, openly, there's no 
fear of political retribution, or as everyone likes to invoke the Dixie Chicks for uh, right. what happened with them. That, that, it's so that's... much more than than them, right? Yeah. Just great. It's, it, it, I mean, and I love the Dixie Chicks. Huge fan. Yeah. But this is also, there's a new generation of There is. And, 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 and they're all supporting one another, too. And, and that, you know, uh, there's this great duo called Brothers Osborne, who in their last music video have a whole whole bit where they're making fun of Trump's Space Force. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, and, and they root and they speak out very vocally on, on social media about being anti-Trump. Uh, and you'll see other artists now chime in in the conversation with them about what's going on. Marin being one of them, too, actually. And so I think there's that, that, that there's that power numbers now where they're not alone on an island by themselves speaking out that they're they're together. There's a community that's willing uh, to support one another as they take political stance. Yeah. I think we do, could do a whole podcast on music and politics and how those two um, intersect. sectors intersect. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I Doug, mean, wh- who's your favorite country music performer? <laughs> you know, I Artist. saw Willie Nelson um, a few months ago. He was at an anthem. Yeah. Um, I was there too. Yeah. Um, who else? Uh, I'm not sure. I need to, you know, Kirk's been telling me he's going to take me to a show. So uh, we're going to do waiting it. on that. Um, but to Elrod's point, one of the big, one of the big, uh, developments in the 2018 race, just from a country music celebrity standpoint was Taylor Swift Mm -hmm. publicly endorsing a Democrat, Phil Bredesen, uh, who ran for uh, a Senate, I think in Tennessee. Yep. And, uh, that was a big deal. Um, oh yeah. Especially because to that point, Taylor had never really gotten into the political space and, and. She's talked about how it's been challenging as anytime anything would happen, she would, people would look to her like, what do you think? And they would, they would really hound her somewhat unfairly you know, and, and almost try to guilt her into having to have a certain position, which, you know, I'm of the belief you can believe whatever you want to believe and, 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 and you, don't, you can say whatever you want or not say whatever you want. That, that's up right. to you as an artist, particularly a lot of artists will say that they make their statements through their music. And I don't think anyone can question that with Taylor – that she believes in female empowerment and taking control. And she took a stand when she filed a lawsuit against a radio, you know, uh, a radio guy who, who sexually harassed her physically. And, and she didn't, she, you know, my opinion, she doesn't need to say anything. Her actions tell the story. She walked the walk where so many, I know so many female artists who have been harassed by radio people. And Taylor was the one who, who, who took the stand and legally challenged and won in court, by the way. Um, but it, it's been great to see her, embrace that side of, uh, you know, taking that stand in the Bredesen race. And she's, you know, she's come out again for gun reform as well. Um, becoming more comfortable with that. Yeah. Look, we could have used Taylor Swift's endorsement in 2016. Hey, Hillary Clinton, uh, but it I is what no it is. Doubt. It I is no what it is. Doubt. But I do agree with you, uh, Kurt, on the, um, on the, on the need for Democrats in this coming election, in this convention to spotlight, uh, folks who, you know, appeal to, you know, um, rural folks, white working class folks. I mean, you look where the convention's going to be. It's in Wisconsin, for crying out loud. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, if there is ever a backdrop to have a country music artist or two play the convention, it's going to be in Wisconsin. Yeah. Look, I I played a major role in terms of um, recruiting artists and and putting together the the program in in 2016. It is hard to get people to agree to to perform at the convention. It's one thing for them to go out and endorse a candidate. It's another thing for them to actually say, I'm willing to go on stage on behalf of the entire Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but but hopefully this year will be different because I think a lot of people realize that they 
they took their own vote for granted. Um, they took their own role in activism for granted. And so I hope that we see um, more people who are willing to. to uh, step if up. anyone at the DNC is listening to this podcast, I will volunteer my services to get some country acts to commit to play the convention. And <laughs> there you have it. There you go. Well, well Kurt- Willie Nelson endorsed uh, Beto. And yes, yeah, I mean his son. They, they they did a whole show with him, and he was on stage with them actually down in Texas. Right. Yep. Yep. And Willie also didn't he campaign for Bernie Sanders? I think it, it seems like something Willie would do. So maybe he's going to be maybe he's going to be divided. <laughs> Kurt, thank you so much for joining us. Um, for those of you listening who would like to follow Kurt on Twitter, his Twitter handle is really original at Kurt Bardella. Can't believe that wasn't it. I know, I know, <laughs> amazing, right? Um, and thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, this is great. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks.